Okay. Um, as we've been going through the New Testament together, that's what we've been doing this year. Um, if you're new or visiting, you're like, they seem to be doing really random things every week. We're just following along with the week's reading. Um, there's a particular passage that really jumped out at me six months ago that we're going to hit. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 7. We were in 1 Corinthians 7 last week. We're going to continue in it. It's something you would have read last Monday. But turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Um, it is another pretty difficult text. It's a saying that for some reason it never caught my attention until this year. Um, and when we read through this, um, I think that sentence probably will stand out. Uh, if not, I will kind of emphasize it. We're not going to read together, but I would like you to stand. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm reading from the NIV. If you would open your Bible or your Bible on your phone, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to be in verse 26, reading from 26 to 35. So people hear the word of the Lord. Paul says this, because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Well, do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned with the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned with the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in an in undivided devotion to the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I could probably, there's a lot I could hit on that. I actually want to come back next year to 1 Corinthians 7 because there's some really important concepts in here. I think I've had more questions this week from people than I have the whole, uh, than the whole year. And so I want to dive into this text. Um, specifically, what really caught my attention is verse 29 um, where... He says, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they did not. This became a focus of mine because last January, my son actually called me, Kieran. And he was reading in Corinthians for some reason. And he called and he said, Dad, can, can you really believe that the Bible tells you to not give a rip about Pat, your wife, my mom? Like, did you know the Bible tells you that? And I'm like, what? Are you serious? And he said, yeah, Corinthians. So I turned there. For some reason, this had never stood out to me. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, that is crazy. So he's like... He's like, Dad, you know what that means? He said, I don't really like it, but it means you get to look like mom. You can go to Applebee's every night with the guys and, and watch sports on television. You can totally ignore her and play video games nonstop at home, not caring what she thinks. Um, you know, and we were talking like, does this mean from now on when I go to Colorado on vacation, forget Pat, leave her at home, and I'm just taking guys and we're hiking and climbing mountains all week and, you know, you know the tough guy stuff. Uh, I don't have to worry about remembering her, remembering her anniversary anymore. And when he brought this to my attention, I'm like, man, that's a real head scratcher. And so I determined back in January when we got the Corinthians, I was going to dig into this text because I was really wanting to know what is going on here. Um, what's that mean? 
So, you know, if you were here last week, we, we, the sermon was really about a Big Mac, right? Remember? Paul had three general principles, and then he had, he had two deep things in the middle, like patties. Um, this is also like another burger. You might think maybe my wife underfeeds me, or I don't go to Jay's enough, because I have burgers on the mind. But this really is like a hamburger, this, this text. What we're going to look at, verses 29 to 31, he's going to give two really important principles. That's the bun. And then he's going to give five applications of those principles in the middle, which is kind of the hamburger. Um, what occurs, um, this is kind of, we're going to go through, walk through this, but really what occurs in the, the principle at the beginning, what are the two buns, are really the key ideas, the five middle things are the examples. So what I want to focus on first are those five um, key ideas. So we're in 1 Corinthians 9, and I'm really focusing in on those three verses that are in the middle of what we read. Um, just a quick thing about context. At the very first thing we read, he talked about because of the present crisis. He was advising, don't get married. Um, so a lot of people are like, well, what was the crisis? There were two things that were really going on in Corinth at that time. There was a big famine in that part of the Mediterranean world that had been going on for about seven years by the time he wrote this, and it was really bad. A lot of people starving. It, was, it had created a lot of trouble. But not only that, in Corinth, Claudius had become the emperor, the Caesar, um, in Rome, and he had noticed the cities that did not have emperor worship, and so he had built a temple to himself in Corinth and was demanding that people worship him as the Lord. And so in that city, it had just happened before this letter that if you didn't bow the knee to Caesar and call him Lord, um, that you could be punished. And, specific, and even if you were to show up and you were to say, well, no, Jesus is Lord, you risk losing your life. So things are getting really intense. Persecution is about to ramp up in Corinth. So that's kind of the situation that's going on that's making Paul say some of the things that he's saying. But I really want to take a few minutes and I want to look at, the, at those two buns, if you don't mind, because that's really the meat of the text. That's really the most important part. And I've got them here in red. These are the two most important things that Paul is saying. And the first one is, is he says the time is short. The time is short. When you read that in the, um, the time is short, and that word time, if you remember when I preached on time about a year ago with stewardship, there's two Greek words for time. There's the Greek word chronos. We get our word chronology that talks about second time, minute time, hour time, day time, calendar kind of time. And then there's the word kairos. And kairos, if you remember, meant like, like, like a bigger event or a moment, um, an opportune time. But it also can be translated as an age of time, a season or an age. And here he's talking about an age or an epoch. And specifically, if I were to show you, um, we've talked about this a lot. And I want to keep reminding you that God's story is a story of a drama in three parts. That God creates. The world is perfect. It's full of his shalom. Satan and sin enter into the world. Everything becomes broken and corrupted. The world we live in right now because of that sin has cascaded into everything. So we live in this time of corruption. And then the promise of scripture that God was going to come back and he was going to make everything as he intended back to its original design. That he would recreate the world and have a community of people that worship him in that. And once again his shalom would, would be in that place. And so in the Bible, there were kind of three ages that the Jewish people believed in. And they believed that when Messiah came, he would come. When he came, he would come as a warrior king. He would defeat the Gentiles. And he would set up new creation, the perfect place where, where people from Israel would live with him forever and ever. So they expected when Messiah came, that would be bringing in of the new age. Okay? We learn from the scripture that actually Messiah was going to come two times. 
He was going to come the first time as the lamb, as a servant, to die for our sin, to take care of the root issue, which is our sin, and he will come again in the future. He will come as the king, and at that time, we'll make everything right. And so we live in this really interesting time right now. We live in this time that's this overlap of the ages, okay? We live in this period that's the overlap of the ages. The old and the new are kind of overlapping. So when he talks about the time being shortened, he's talking about this age that we live in, this overlap, that it is short. I want to I hit that word, short. Um, in the NIV, it reads like an adjective, time is short. Like you might say, Garen is long-winded, right? Long-winded Garen, it's an adjective. But in the Greek, it's actually a verbal form and it's passive. And instead of saying the time is short, it actually says the time has been shortened or the age has been shortened. Don't ask me how. Jesus said this in Mark where he said that the last days, it says they would be shortened. And Paul says that. So in some way, God has compressed whatever this timeline is of these ages. He has compressed. In some way, he's kind of bringing that new age forward and that we should be living with this sense that time is short right now. Um, that word shortened was used, anybody here do sailing, like to do sailboats? I'm not a sailboat, I'm not a water guy, I'm more of a mountain guy. Anybody here sailor? If you pull your boat into harbor, you will furl your sail, which is you'll take the sail that's been catching the wind when you get into harbor, you bring it down, you compress it, you shorten it. That's what this word was used of in the Greek language, of shortening a sail or compressing it. So Paul's saying God has taken this age and in some form he's compressed it. Um, he's trying to communicate that in, in the big picture, we are standing near the end of history. The time is running out, that there is a little time left. You know how near? I don't know. People who follow Jesus have always thought it was their generation, so I'm never going to say he's coming in my generation, but the thing I do know is that the time of his coming and the end of this age, it is a lot closer than it was yesterday, right? It is a day closer than it was yesterday. And I've got to live with that reality that the fact that the eternal kingdom could arrive at any moment, right? So this age has been shortened. And then the second one is this, that he says that the world in its present form in verse 31, that it's passing away, that it's passing away. That word um, form is the Greek word schema. We get our word scheme from it. So he's saying like the scheme of this world, it's passing away. The NLT, New Living Translation, says the world as we know it. Um, that scheme of things refers to the way we look at things, the manner of life, our manner of doing things in this world. And Paul says it's, it's actually passing away. The way we're used to doing life, that that thing is passing away. Um, in Greek, um, that this, this whole age that we live in, this thing is passing away. And in Greek, it's the, the, the kind of the language in that language, it's really emphasizing that it's in the process of passing away. It, not just it will pass away, that right now it's even in the, th the end of its throes. It's in the process of passing away. Ben Witherington says that we live in a world that's winding down. That's how he translates this. So here's, here's the thing, reality, that Paul's trying to get to us. That number one, we live in an age, and God has shortened that time. And this age that we live in, this is an age that is now in the process of passing away. That it is temporary, it's transitory, that we live in an age and a way of doing things that is fleeting and that's finite. And that much of the pattern of this world the morals, the ideals, the values, a lot of the beliefs, the behavior, the priorities of this world, even some of the God-designed institutions, the God-designed, God-ordained institutions will pass away. And Paul knows this because Jesus said in Mark 12, 25, that in the age to come in new creation, there will be no more marriage. 
There will be no more marriage. So even a good thing God created like marriage, it is in the process of passing away. So these two concepts to Paul are really important in his thinking. This age that we're in, it has been shortened, and that the scheme of things of the age we live in, it is right now in the process of passing away. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, I want you to think and to be people of new creation. Yes, you live in this world, but I want you to be people who are in new creation, and that you're living as if we are in the final days of the current age that we live with our eyes upon eternity and on the coming age and we don't invest too heavily in life as it is now. I'm not saying we don't invest, we don't invest too heavily. Now Paul is gonna apply this to those five areas. So this is kind of the center, the center part of that. Those are the, to me, those are the meat, the most important things, but now he's gonna hit five, he's gonna apply it to five areas of life, this principle. We know the five things, they're all as ifs, and they're really divided into three parts. He's going to hit marriage by itself. And the next, the next of the three parts are pairs. The first pair is going to be emotions. The second pair is going to be possessions. And I want, I mean, I don't know if you, when we read this, I don't know if it jumped out to you. It did me when Kieran called me and I read this in January. The things he says strike you because they're very, very extreme, right? They're particularly extreme, especially, I think, the first three, and especially that first one about marriage. It sounds really extreme. Like, Paul, what are you saying to live as if I'm not married? Gordon Fee, probably the, the number one scholar in Corinthians, he says that if we take this literally, it becomes an absurdity. And it's not meant to be taken literally. We know it's not meant to be taken literally because in the first part of this chapter, Paul talks about honoring marriage and how we serve our spouse and we love them, right? So we know he's not really saying you like live as if she doesn't exist. In Ephesians 5, he elevates marriage really high of how it illustrates the relationship of Jesus to his community as his bride. So he elevates it like it's very significant. We know he's not putting down mourning and rejoicing because, I mean, what Jordan and I did a couple weeks ago in Romans 12, mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. In Philippians 4, he says rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. So he's not saying we don't do these things. Um, he's saying something else. So what's going on here? Why is Paul speaking so like exact, in such an exaggerated fashion? I asked my triad this week. We looked at this and I'm like, I want to know what you think is going on. And one of the guys said, well, it's obviously, it's, an hyper, it's a hyperbole, right? Hyperbole is an exaggeration, something I say, not meant to be taken literally, but still I'm trying to make an important point. When Jesus says, cut off your hand or pluck out your eye, he doesn't mean that literally. He's exaggerating, trying to make an important point. And so that's what Paul is doing here. He's using hyperbole because he's speaking in super strong language because he wants to grab our attention and kind of shock us. And when I opened this text in January with Kieran, it did shock me. I'm like, whoa, that's pretty strong. How, how have I read that? so many times, and that's never grabbed me before. So as we go through these five things, to really get at Paul's point, it's gonna be when we get to four and five that it's gonna become really clear what he's really saying with this. So I want you to hang with me for a second. So the first one is marriage. Those who have wives should live as if they do not. We're gonna come back to that one in a minute because this whole chapter is about marriage and singleness, so I'm gonna come back to it. The next two is about emotions. Verse 30, those who mourn as if they did not those who are happy as if they were not. I think C.K. Barrett says it really well. He says, the point is that for the believer, neither laughter or, or tears should have the last word. So a man should never allow himself to be lost in either. Paul's not saying don't ever mourn or don't ever rejoice. 
But he's saying, but when you mourn or when something great happens in your life, you've, you've got to do it in the context that we live in an age that is shortened and that the scheme, the form of this world is passing away and we've got to do it with the right kind of attitude. A day is coming when God will wipe away all tears and mourning will stop, right? And it will be turned into rejoicing and that the rejoicing in that age, the joy of that age, the, the greatest joy of this age won't even hold a candle to the joy that's coming. So he's saying you've got to keep your emotions in perspective. But this to me really gets clear in the next two when he talks about possessions. This is where I think Paul really starts to come into focus. I really promise. I think there's a payoff to this. And so I want to take them one at a time. And as we read these last two, there's two really, really significant words that Paul uses. So first he says, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. In the Greek language that he wrote in, that word keep is a very, very intense word. It means to hang on to something and to not give it up, to not relinquish it, to hold on to it with all of your life, okay? Um, it was used of clinging to a person in order to keep them from leaving. It was used in Luke 4 when Jesus was in Nazareth, and it says the people tried to physically restrain Jesus so he couldn't leave them because they were going to do something bad to him. It's a really strong word. And then verse 31, he says, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. That word engrossed is very significant. Again, it's a very strong word in the Greek. I think the NIV did a great job using that word. The word in Greek means to be totally preoccupied by something, to be totally absorbed with something, to be possessed by it, to come under the dominant control, the dominating power of something. So here's what Paul is saying in that last pair with these really strong words of hanging on to stuff or becoming engrossed in something. He says this, sure, own things, but don't cling desperately to your possessions. Sure, make good use of the things of life, but do so without becoming overly attached or preoccupied with them. Stephen Armstrong says this, Paul is saying, yes, possess possessions, but don't let possessions possess you. That's his point. And these two words, this keep, to desperately cling to, and this, this engross, to let something just dominate your life, to become the thing that just is everything to you, are really in two important words, and I think in understanding all five statements, because those words are really idolatry language. So if you were here two years ago, we did a series on idolatry, remember? I did that in that first year because to me, that understanding of sin, that sin is primarily idolatry, that I live life for myself, pursuing passionately something other than God, that my love, instead of for the creator who created me, that I give my love and my passion and my desire to something that he's created, that idea of idolatry in scripture. And in the Bible, idolatry is all about affections and desires. It's about your heart. It's about what do you most love? Where do you put most of your time, your energy, your money, re your resources? What is the thing you are most devoted to? It's about your loves. What are you most profoundly in love with? And what we do with idolatry is I take a created thing, something created by God, and I elevate that created, and it's a good thing, right? It's almost always a good thing. I take that good thing, I elevate it above the creator. I make it more important than him. I take a thing that's a second or third or fourth thing, and I make it the first thing, and by doing that, I make God a lesser thing, and he's the, he's the creator of all. He's the one who gave me that gift. Um, I, I, I talked about this two years ago, but for those of you that are parents, have you ever given your child a toy, some technology usually or something, 
as a gift, and it ends up, they spend more time focused on that than on your relationship, and you almost feel like you lost your child because you gave them a good gift, and the gift is more important than you. Probably nobody's ever had that experience, right? It's the same thing. God gives us good things, but they become the center of our heart and devotion. That's, that's what this language is all about. The thing that I long for and that I live for more than anything. So looking at this text, what Paul is saying is that mourners can become inordinately engrossed in their mourning if the thing they lost was the thing they loved more than anything, including God. That you can become inordinately engrossed in your mourning. That those who rejoice in a good thing, it's a good thing, but they can elevate it to their supreme joy if that is the most important thing in the world that they're living for. They elevate it to the supreme joy. That a purchaser can buy something and become so consumed with it that that thing becomes the thing where their heart and all of their time and energy goes. And if we apply it to the first one, that a husband or wife can become the primary thing I live for, even above Jesus. In this point, Paul is pointing us away from raising things to idolatrous levels in our lives. And he's saying we should not be preoccupied with the things that are in this age. They may be good, but don't be preoccupied for them, but keep those things in their proper place. Keep them in the proper place. Because God has shortened this age, and because the thing, a lot of the things in this age, as good as they may be, there's a lot of junk, but even some of the good things, that a lot of those things are passing away. So don't become preoccupied with them. He's saying you can either cling to the things of this life or you can cling to Jesus. I can either become engrossed in the things of this life or I can become engrossed with my creator, right? It's one or the other. It can't be both. That's why Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot cling to two masters. You cannot be engrossed with two masters because you'll either love one and then hate the other, right? So here's what Corinthians is about. And here's what I love about these texts, frankly. When I sit down with these and I'm like, man, that's a big challenge, is frequently when I dig into it, I find that Paul is really making one big point, or this text is making one big point. This is pointing us to idolatry, and I think the thing he's ultimately pointing us to is the issue of priority, of priority. Who or what gets first place in my life? Paul is saying that in my life, Jesus is to have first loyalty. He's to be my first loyalty. And there are to be no other loyalties, period. He already told them in chapter 7 and in chapter 6 that you do not belong to yourself. You have been bought with a price. You have a Lord and a master. And then what we just read this morning in verse 35, the last verse of what we read, Paul says this, I am saying these things for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what this is about, priority. Where's your devotion? And am I giving undivided devotion to the Lord? This whole idea of the supremacy of Jesus is so important to Paul. In Colossians, he says, all things have been created through him and for him. I was created by him and I was created for him. Sure, he gives me good stuff, but I wasn't created for my wife. I wasn't created for my children. I wasn't created for my job. I mean, there's a sense, but I was created ultimately for him, right? All, by all things, by, through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together so that in everything he might have the what? What? Can we, can we say the word? <laughs> that he might have the supremacy, the supremacy, the new American standard so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. 
the King James, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That there is a higher loyalty in my life than the stuff of my life and the things of this age, including my wife. Including my wife. That higher loyalty is Jesus. So here's what Paul's saying in all of this, this hyperbole. And applying these two principles to how I live my daily life. He's saying this, yes, marry, be single, do business, buy, sell, have children, eat pizza, drink Mountain Dew, especially on Labor Day, right? Grill some burgers, enjoy life. That's all the stuff life is made up of. But do not seek those things as your first priority, as those those things were the ultimate thing, as though they're the ultimate thing. Weeping, rejoicing, buying, marrying, they are all legitimate, necessary parts of life. But the highest priority in life is Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the highest priority. Those things, as good as they are, are never to get in the way of me following hard after him. Following hard after him. So let me come back to that statement about marriage. Those who have wives should live as if they do not. I mean, if you're married, if you're dating, if you're single and you dream of marriage, we all know in some sense that a spouse can so easily become an idol. That I think in Western culture, marriage, the idea of marriage has become an idol, I think, in our culture in a lot of ways. Not in some places, not. But I still think a lot of people carry it as, a, as an idol. He's not telling wives, husbands, or wives to not treat their spouse with unkindness or to ignore them or to neglect them or treat them as if they're not important. That's not the point. Paul is writing this very aware, very aware that marriage is an institution, though it was divinely ordered and created by God, and it is a good thing that it will pass away in the age to come. He knows that. It will pass away. So he's saying that husbands should not focus totally on their marriage at the expense of their relationship with God, which is easy to do. That our spouse is not to be the sole focus of my life. That I think he's reminding us that marriage is not the end all and the be all of life. And there are some married people who need to hear that. That marriage, your marriage is not the end all, be all of life. And there are some single people that need to hear that. Who are so desperate to get married. I want to tell you, marriage is not the end all and be all of life. Jesus is the end all and be all of life. Okay? The husband's first allegiance is to the Lord who owns him. And the husband is to seek first the kingdom of God. And the wife, her first allegiance is to the Lord who owns her, and she is to seek first the kingdom of God. That's why I think the NLT, the New Living Translation, translate this really well, where he says, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. And then I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon that I wanted to show you. He said, when the apostle declares that they, they that have wives be as though they had none, he does not teach us to despise marriage, but not to seek our heaven in it. But not seek our heaven in it. How many of us seek our heaven in our marriage? How many of us seek our heaven in a boyfriend and girlfriend? The, the place we look for heaven is in our children or our grandchildren. The place we look for heaven is in our job. None of those things is going to be heaven for you. Do you know that? They're all broken. They're all fallen. They can never sustain you. They can never totally satisfy. They are not all sufficient. Only Jesus is that, okay? And so Paul is saying, like, quit making things here, trying to make them into heaven. That last phrase really struck me, and it struck me for this reason. A pastor I love to listen to, Tim Keller, who pastors in New York, was diagnosed a little over a year ago with pancreatic cancer, which is a pretty deadly cancer, right? 
And he's had a lot of impact on our culture, and I don't just mean among Christians, um, among a lot of non-believers. So much so that The Atlantic, a national magazine, wanted, to do, wanted him to write an article on death and him facing death as a pastor. And in that article, he said something that really, there was a lot that grabbed my attention. But one thing that really grabbed my attention is Tim Keller talks a lot about idolatry. And he said, you know, you talk about it and you, you th- you're living to have Jesus first and not to have other loves above him. It's always hard. And he says, suddenly when you get cancer and you, you're facing death and you only may have a year to live, He's like, suddenly you really get stripped down and you realize maybe I've raised those things even higher than I thought, that maybe I really was expecting my wife to be heaven for me. Maybe I really thought I could find heaven in my ministry. And he said, God's really stripped me down, stripped me down and helped me to realize that I shouldn't be looking for heaven on earth. We're not to live as if our earthly family was all that mattered. Man, I think these words are so needed. They struck me so weird back in January, but as I've gotten to see what Paul's talking about, I'm like, man, I need this. I mean, I know personally, it is so hard to live life, I think. It is so easy to live life primarily for family. It is so easy, at least for me, to live with your spouse being your main focus, your kids being your main focus. Um, and Paul's calling us to keep that in proper, proper place. Okay, worship team, you guys can come out. I know they're backstage waiting for their cue. Let me, let me wrap this up. Um, the two key things that are driving Paul's, this whole chapter on marriage and singleness, these two thoughts that are really driving his thinking regarding marriage, regarding singleness, really regarding everything in life, everything in life are these two thoughts that we need to keep our vision on. Number one, this age has been shortened by God it could be nearer to Jesus' return than I think, and that the scheme, the pattern of this age that I live in, that this is in the process of passing away. This is in the process of passing away, okay? He could come tomorrow, and a lot of the stuff I invest in could be gone, right? So he's saying, don't invest your life into this inordinately, right? Don't put everything into this earth and this life. This passage was so hard to me is so profound it is Paul calling me to keep an internal perspective that's what this passage is about that it's foolish for us to live as if the things of this age this world right now that are so tangible that these are the permanent enduring things it is so easy to live there isn't it he's saying the things that are permanent and enduring are the things that are coming in the age to come some of the good things from this are going to go into that but Jesus is going to be supreme no matter what in the end And it's unwise for me to put all the eggs into the basket of this life. And we're so, I'm just constantly drawn back to putting all my eggs into this basket, right? And he's like, don't do that. Put your eggs into the coming future. Paul's not devaluing the good things of earth. He's only challenging us to put them in proper perspective. That's why I love C.S. Lewis so profoundly. So much of what he says is profound. He says that if you aim for earth you're not even going to get it. But if you aim for heaven, you're going to get heaven and earth both. It's the idea that if I live for my marriage and I'm expecting my wife to be heaven for me, which she never will, right? That creates conflict. I put a burden on her she cannot carry, right? But if I live for Jesus first and he's my, my primary love, that frees me up to be the kind of husband I should be for her. So if I aim for heaven, like Paul's asking, then I get earth from him. So I really think Paul's calling us to live life with these two lenses. A this age is shortened mindset and a 
this, the scheme, the pattern of things is currently, it's in the process of passing away mindset. And he's again calling me to live with an eye to eternity. Like in Colossians 3, set your hearts, set your loves, your desires, your affections above where Christ is. Set it on him, the one seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, the things that get your focus, your concentration on things above, not on earthly things. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, where he calls us to fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I want to tell you, if we live with that dual vision, we will live into the thing, Paul, that Jesus so desires of us, that we'd learn to be in the world, but not of the world. We can live with that vision. We can be in it, but not of it. Al used to tell the story that towards the end of the Civil War, there were some, a lot of the Southerners saw what was coming, that the Union was going to win. And so, but a lot of people in the South were keeping enough Confederate currency to live, but most of their income they were using to buy Federal currency because they saw what was coming. And the people that did that were wise because they were living for what was coming, but the people in the South who just put all their money into the current currency of the South ended up being the ones who didn't do well when it happened. So, 12th, we are to be people of the future. Yes, we live in the present, but I'm be a person of the future. Um, it's the only way to live well in the now. So, let us live with our hearts and our gaze fixed on eternity. seeing I just I'm gonna tell you everything in our culture is telling us the opposite right right get a bucket list of 50 things and get those things done before you in life because what matters is the now right uh, pour yourself fully into the here and now uh, if for those of you for back in the 70s we only go around life once grab all the gusto you can you remember that I think that was Budweiser it is so easy for my gaze to become fixed on now than to fixed Speaking of the American church, Patrick Morley wrote this, truth be known, many of us live more for the world that is going than the world that is coming. Many of us live more for the world that's going than the world that's coming. And Vance Havner agrees, he writes, it is the tragedy of the Western church that we have lost our pilgrim character and we've driven down our tent pegs in these poor lowlands as though we were here to stay. That's why Stephen Armstrong calls this text a gut check passage. This is a gut check of where am I really investing my love and my heart. So I want us all to do a gut check for just a minute. Because I've been doing this actually since January. I've been doing a lot this week. And I want to ask you a question. I wanna, I've been asking where am I and I want to ask where are you. I want to know where are you currently focusing right now? What's the focus of your life? Is it something in this, this world present age or is your focus primarily on the one who will be reigning for eternity, the world to come? Are you living primarily with your eye on the present or with, with an eye on the future? I wonder if there's something, I've been thinking a lot about this history, something I need to surrender that's, that's been elevated higher than him. And I need to lay that down say, Lord, I need to confess. I've given my heart and love to something higher than you, and I need to surrender that. Something that's become an idol in your life, like your spouse, a, bo- 
boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's your children. I had no idea that I'd get a new idol in my life. Grandchildren, right? Oh my goodness. Who knew? A new battle, right? My job or my business becoming the thing I live for, sports, my hobby, my boat or my car, the team that I support. Maybe it's academic achievement. Maybe it's my reputation. Maybe it's my income. I don't know. But we all have something we struggle to put above him. And so what I want to do is we're going to sing in a minute about surrendering all and about laying everything at his feet and, and seeking to put him first. So I want to invite you this morning that if there is something that you're living for that's part of this life, it may be a good thing, but you're living for that more than him, and that thing has your focus here instead of on eternity. And if God's speaking to you, I want to challenge you to come forward, and we've got these notepads, and to say, Lord, here is the thing, the thing that tends to get above you, and this morning I want to surrender it. Write that thing down and say a prayer and say, Lord, help me to elevate you back to the rightful position. I want you to be the primary focus of my life, not that person or that thing. So if have that need, I just want to invite you to come forward and do that while we sing. So, would you stand? I just want to echo that. So as we sing, you can sing where you're at. You can come forward. And obviously you can pray where you're at, but I just want to challenge you and invite you too. This is it's something that Garen's invited us to, so he must think it's important and valuable. So let's just uh, consider his invitation, okay? Let's sing together all to Jesus. We really mean it, Lord. Help us. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence. Jesus, I surrender, Lord. 
don't have to come up here to surrender something, but my guess is, is all of us have something to surrender. And so on your way home, when you get home, take a minute and ask the Lord, Lord, what's the thing I really live for the most? Surrender that to him. Because can you imagine, because you know, out in the world, do you know what everybody's living for? They're living for the present and they're pouring their whole life into something in the present that's gonna be lost, that's gonna disappear, that won't last, that isn't permanent, that isn't enduring. And that's why there's so much mess in the world. When we talked about idolatry, whenever you focus on an idol, the, all the, the ways you, it's like addiction, you, the destruction that comes from that, the ways it doesn't fulfill you. Can you imagine if we could be a people who are living with something much greater than things in the world, that we're free from being enslaved to stuff here, and that in a way that we have an eye to eternity and we're making an impact and living differently than other people, and that we have a different kind of joy because we have a joy in the Lord that just infuses everything. So 12th, may we be that kind of people May we be the kind of people who live with that dual focus with an eye to eternity. So 12th, let me pray. Father, help us to be those kind of people to remember, like Paul, that this time, this age is shortened, that the, the things in this world, the forms, the scheme, the patterns are passing away. Lord, may we keep that vision, keep our eyes on you, keep our eyes on eternity so we can live well and live better in this age. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who is supreme, amen. All right, 12th, you are sent to live with Jesus as the supreme one in your life this week.